The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Of course, our number one topic today is impeachment, but we also want to take a step back from this week's politics and look forward to 2022 and future elections. The Democrats' victories in Georgia were a decade in the making. Can we do it again in another Republican state? Later in the show, Steve Phillips says, Texas is next. But first, Donald Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate, his second, began Tuesday. He's charged with inciting the insurrection on January 6th that sought to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the Electoral College. For comment, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. John, welcome back. It is a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Well, we're recording this on Tuesday evening, after the Senate voted 56 to 44 to proceed to the main part of the trial on Wednesday. Uh, Today, uh, Tuesday, was devoted to Trump's lawyers arguing that a president cannot be impeached after he's left office. We're through with that. Now we get to the substantive arguments about what happened on January 6th and Trump's responsibility for that. I have some questions about the issues in the trial. For starters, Is it true that since the beginning of the republic, no enemy, foreign or domestic, has ever obstructed Congress's counting of the electoral votes until Donald Trump? As best uh, we can tell, uh, no. Now, we've had some pretty nasty fights along the way. 1800, the the Jefferson-Adams battle was a, a, a bloody battle that ultimately played out with uh, the guy who got put in as vice president shooting the former secretary of the treasury. But we've never had a circumstance where uh, a, a, a figure in the process literally succeeded in sending a mob into the Capitol and stopping the process for you know a, a matter of hours. But yeah, this is unprecedented. And one of the key arguments made by Trump's defenders is that Trump cannot be punished for expressing his view that the election was stolen by the Democrats and that really all he said was that his supporters should, quote, fight like hell, close quote, which they say he used in a figurative sense. It was a metaphor and, quote, could not be construed to encourage acts of violence, close quote. What do you say to that argument? Yeah, I think that in law school, you might, uh, you'd be lucky to get a D on that one. (laughs) Um, And look, that's a really, really, uh, it's a badly framed argument right off the bat, because uh, even people who haven't been to law school will tell you that, you know, you can't, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. There are, there are points at which you shouldn't uh, say things that might incite a crowd to do something dangerous. And 
when you, as the sitting president of the United States, have literally called people to Washington, great masses of people to Washington, telling them that the fate of the republic is at hand, right? Because the election is being stolen, all of these lies, but still the lies you have told. And then you get in front of them and you say, we're going to head up to the Capitol and fight, fight, fight. You know, I mean, uh, that I think even on the baseline reaches the standards that, that we might that we might be concerned with. But then there's a second part of this that's really important to understand. And uh, Trump's lawyers and his, you know, more informed uh, advocates are deliberately lying to the American people. They are, A, lying about the president's intents. I think it's pretty obvious what his intents were. But B, they're actually lying about the process. They're creating the fantasy that this is the equivalent of a criminal trial uh, or even a civil trial. It's neither of those. This is a political action, right? And this trial is, is a constitutional endeavor. All that is in play here is the question of whether the sitting president of the United States might reasonably be assumed to have created a circumstance that led to the invasion of the Capitol and the violence and all these other things. And, and if you believe that uh, that, that is the case, there's no free speech protection there. And, and I think this is part of the sort of diminution of the impeachment power by both parties over a long period of time. They've made it too legalistic and they have tried to deny the political side of this. And the political side of this is that the founders of the American experiment gave members of Congress the power to remove a sitting president to punish a former president if it was determined by that Congress that the president had engaged in actions that were antithetical to constitutional governance. And that's, and boy, I think by almost any measure, you've met that standard with Donald Trump. Well, Trump's lawyers respond to that, that the people who stormed the Capitol, quote, did so of their own accord and for their own reasons, close quote, their actions Trump's lawyers say, quote, were utterly inexcusable and deserve robust and swift investigation and prosecution, close quote. But that has nothing to do with Trump. And unfortunately, um, too many of the people that went to the Capitol said they were doing it because their president told them to do it, um, which is kind of an inconvenient uh, reality, inconvenient truth. Uh, but then there's more to it than that. If we go back and we look at what the president said, not just on January 6th, but in the weeks and months leading up to it, what you see is the framing out of an argument for exactly what happened. And I'm not in any way going to suggest that I'm prescient, but um, I wrote a piece for the nation in, I think we finished it in early October of uh, 2020, saying January 6th is going to be the big day because that's the day when they have to certify the electoral college votes. And if it's a close election, I actually thought it would be a closer election. So, you know, I'm not in any way suggesting that I, I knew exactly what was going to go on. But, you know, if it's a close election, that's where you're going to see potentially a real fight and, and a lot of complexity. I wasn't the only person that was looking at that day. So by any measure, Donald Trump engaged in actions that made January 6th a, a, a point of tension you know, a critical juncture. And then he stepped into the void there and told people to fight, 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 and told them to head to the Capitol. And so I, I think 
that that the arguments of his lawyers here are you know a absurd, but b also um, sort of the 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 product of uh, a terribly difficult situation. Uh, if I was his legal team and I was able to do whatever I wanted, I of course would argue impeachment of former presidents is unconstitutional. That's false, but I would argue that because that's enough for a lot of Republican senators to hang their hat on and you walk away. I wouldn't go into you know, all of this other stuff. I wouldn't even, you know, go down that avenue because it's so weak. But uh, by all accounts, this is what Donald Trump wants his legal team to talk about. Yeah. And in fact, he wants them to suggest that there was some legitimacy in his concerns about the election. And I think that's why his initial legal team pretty much quit. One of the most intriguing arguments I've heard is from Republican Joni Ernst of Iowa, she argues that stripping Trump of the right to run for president again in four years would violate the rights of millions of voters to vote for the candidate they want. I hadn't thought of that. Well, I mean, it's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's an argument that, that is an interesting one, right? Because, of course, we do want people to be able to run for office. And, uh, and we want a wide range of people with a lot of opinions, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, whether you like it or not, we have established in this country that there are just certain lines you don't cross. And um, one is that when you get in office, if you incite insurrection to try and overturn the results of an election in order to illegitimately keep yourself in power, that might be the point at which uh, a Congress would say, we don't want that person to be able to do that again. And in our legal system, and again, this is a political act, not a legal act, but in our legal system, we allow for that. We say that there are certain points at which you will be penalized in a way that prevents you from doing things. You may end up going to jail. You may be denied, you know, other freedoms. I don't I don't necessarily like all of that. I, I, I can see problems in that. But the fact is our system operates in that way. And then if we move out of the legal and into the constitutional area, this is where it gets interesting. Because our constitution specifically frames out a procedure by which you can prevent people from seeking office who have engaged in seditious acts. Or, and again, if you read the constitution itself, uh, in, in the post-Civil War amendments, or who have encouraged sedition, who have encouraged insurrection. And so our constitution very specifically anticipates a circumstance like this. And so for not the first time, I will say, Joni Ernst is wrong. <laughs> There's another completely different kind of argument. It's the argument that we should look forward and not backward, that the Democrats, by impeaching Trump after he's left office, are trying to, quote, further divide the country and inflame partisan tensions and poison the cooperative spirit we need in a Senate that's already divided 50-50. Worst argument possible. I mean, that's that's even fouler than you know, anything that Joni Ernst or Trump's lawyers have come up with, right? The fact of the matter is that any first-year student in you know, adolescent psychology or anything like that will tell you that, that accountability, that dealing with the issues that, that have arisen is one of the first steps that you have on the way to actually you know, resolving things and getting to a point where you can work together. If you don't address fundamental issues, right, and, and 
I can't think of something more fundamental than inciting the mob to attack the Capitol and overturn the results of an election. You can't, you don't address that, right? The likelihood that you are somehow going to get to a point where there's all sorts of, you know, cooperation and flowers and, and happiness is absurd. It's, it's, it's madness. No, in fact, um, a failure to hold Trump to account, which is, I'm afraid, what we're going to end up seeing, but a failure to hold Trump to account virtually guarantees that the division will continue. And frankly, that we will see A, Trump linger on the scene politically, and B, others, you know, step into the void that any void that may be created by his ultimate departure. And and if you if you doubt me, just take a look at, you know, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Yeah. Those guys are literally, literally competing right now, I think pretty ambitiously, to be the next Trump. And then there's one final argument uh, that I'm aware of, which is Everybody knows we need 17 Republican senators to join all 50 Democrats in order to get the two-thirds necessary to convict Trump. There are not 17 Republicans who are going to do this, so the whole thing is a big waste of time, and we shouldn't be doing it at all. Again, a really, really bad argument. And, and here's the bottom line. Accountability actually drives not just potential for cooperation, but policy itself. Franklin Roosevelt knew that. That's one of the reasons why he was so militant about holding people responsible for all the economic wrongdoing of the 1920s to account, the bankers and the speculators and others. The, the fact is that accountability doesn't stall government out. It actually, if we do it right, I think it makes government more likely to function. And then there's one other element here, too. It is this question. I think Jamie Raskin, uh, the lead manager on the impeachment, puts it best when he talks about this. When do we stop forgiving and forgetting? What is too much? You literally have exactly what the founders of the American experiment feared the most. The reason they wrote the impeachment power into the Constitution was to prevent a president from abusing his position in order to maintain that position. That was the biggest fear of all, the fear of a American king, an American monarchy. Uh, you literally had that play out in January, January 6th of, of 2021. In, in memory, you know, so recent that, you know, we're still gathering information about what all happened. And you have people saying, oh, we can move on from that. I, literally, if you move on from that, two things become real. Number one, we have the great possibility that we will see something worse in, in the near future. And number two, presidential accountability has been dealt a, a severe blow and a blow that I'm not sure we come back from. And I, I, I hate to be that depressing, if you will. But the fact is that this Senate, which is unlikely to convict Donald Trump, uh, has in its hands the question of whether uh, we will ever hold a president to account for wrongdoing. And the precedent that they send could be a very bad one. John Nichols, readhimatthenation.com. Thank you, John. Honored to be with you. And as you know, I love talking about impeachment. still thinking about the historic elections in Georgia, which, of course, voted for Biden and two Democratic senators. It was the culmination of a decade of work by Stacey Abrams' new Georgia project. And we wonder, could we do this again in another state, maybe Texas? For answers, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White. He's the founder of Democracy in Color. 
They've proposed the best data-backed plan on how Democrats and progressives can take back the country. He's host of the Democracy in Color podcast, and he writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Nation. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, the big question, how did Stacey Abrams do it in Georgia? So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been uh, quite the journey. I mean, let's, what do they call it? The 10-year overnight success, basically, right? And, uh, <laughs> yes. and I hadn't realized it had been that long. So I've been connected. I got connected to Stacey by uh, Ben Jealous when he was at president of the NAACP. He knew Stacey from like 20 years ago when they were first coming up. And Ben connected me to her uh, almost 10 years to the day from the, the, the runoff election. It was January 2011. And the very first email she sent to me, she says, we have a lot of opportunities in Georgia, but it will require careful planning and friends from outside the South. And so when I first met with her in 2011, she had this very detailed, multi-year, data-rich plan for how they were going to turn Georgia's demographic population changes into votes at the polls and political power. And it was multi-year, and it was tiered and methodical. And bottom line, that's what they've done. They've steadily, methodically turned the large number of non-voting people of color into voters and built the infrastructure and the organizational capacity to do that. And the whole world saw the results um, in January. And Texas has the largest Latino population in the United States outside of California. California Latinos are already very much mobilized politically to vote Democratic. Texas Latinos are not mostly mobilized to vote uh, Democratic. Let's first of all talk about the kind of lay of the land of the demography in Texas. Yeah, and it's interesting you make the, the California connection, right? I mean, I've been in, in doing this work out here in California for, you know, since the 80s, really. And it, it wasn't always the case. Right. And it really was, there was a multifaceted Trump-like attack, particularly on Latinos and on immigrants in the early 90s, right? The author, Jewel Taylor Gibbs, has this book called Preserving Privilege. And so the anti-immigration, anti-bilingual education, ballot measures that they had, in a lot of ways, awoke the Latino population in California. And Latinos then began to both naturalize, become citizens, and register and vote in larger and larger numbers to the extent where now all of the statewide elected offices are held by Democrats. And that is largely because of the Latino dominance or, or influence within the overall state population. So Texas has a similar potential and trajectory. And I actually think that they're moving in that direction. And, you know, people, there's so much um, misinterpretation from this last election in terms of what actually happened. I mean, it's that Trump found every possible last Trump believer in the country and turn them out. And there's a real uh, uh, potential to misinterpret the size and strength and reach of his, of his vote, which is not small by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not the majority. And we saw that in the Georgia runoffs. Without Trump on the ballot, without the you know, visceral cult-like devotion, the, they did not have the historic turnout. And so I'd like to say that in Texas, Biden got more votes in Texas than Trump got in Texas in 2016. Hmm. And so there's real progress that's happening there um, and that we did, but, you know, we didn't, didn't flip it this year because of how large the Trump vote was. But there is still 3 million 
eligible non-voting Latinos in this last election uh, in Texas, and then another million uh, other people of color who were eligible and didn't vote. So the potential is enormous in a state that was only lost by 600,000 votes when there's four and a half million people of color who didn't vote. You have a chart in your article in The Nation magazine showing how the Democrats lost Texas in 2020 by 630,000 votes, but there are four and a half million people of color eligible to vote who didn't do it. It's eye-opening. It's astounding. It's inspiring. Now, so the question, you know, I've often talked about is why Texas is so different from California. You talked about the political history of California that mobilized uh, Latinos, Mexican-Americans especially, to vote. And of course, there's a second factor, which is that they were organized, especially in Los Angeles County, the largest county in the nation, 10 million people, probably majority Latino now. They were mobilized by a new labor movement, the Los Angeles County Federation became a Latino-led organization during the period that we're talking about. And they put a lot of energy into registering and turning out uh, Latino uh, uh, voters. And Texas, of course, is a notoriously anti-union state. There's nothing like the L.A. County Fed in Texas. So the, the question is whether Texas has other groups that are capable of playing a similar role. And what's your answer to that? Yeah, no, that's a very good insight in terms of the California trajectory is that that was a very strategic role that uh, the L.A. County Fed played, um, you know, particularly under uh, Miguel Contreras. He was the, the the head of that, partnering with community-based organizations. And so yeah. Anthony Thigpen runs the organization Agenda, which, is, which has built – uh, a voter mobilization operation. I've walked precincts with Anthony's operation. You know, they hand you a, a folder and you go door to door, you go back, they plug it right into the computer. And so the similar type of operation that Stacey and them ran in, uh, in, in Georgia. So that infrastructure was critical in terms of California having more of that union um, capacity. That's a, a kind of a wake up call to the progressive movement about Texas. So there, is, there are a number of organizations in Texas that are doing very good work. I mean, the one that I highlighted, it's kind of been the, the, the centerpiece of a lot of the work there is Texas Organizing Project. And so run by Michelle Tremillo and Brianna Brown, the deputy director. They have not gotten the acclaim or credit that they should have, but they've been very instrumental and very effective. Um, and I talk in my book about how uh, like somebody once told me, he said, never trust a number that ends in zero in terms of voter turnout in projections. Mm-hmm. And so top will send out these updates saying, and then people will be like, oh, well, we contacted, you know, a million people. You can email a million people, right? But whether that translates to votes is a whole other question. And so top will say, we delivered 121,333 people to the polls. And they did do that, and they did that in in, a, uh, in Houston's mayoral election a few years ago. That was the margin of difference. They did that in San Antonio's mayoral elections. That was the margin of difference. They've done it in a number of district attorney races. And so uh, TOP is the organization that has the statewide infrastructure, statewide apparatus, and certainly the methodology and the results, but they need more resources. And so that's what, I mean, I was... I used to have to, I mentioned that people should add a zero in terms of the amounts of money that's out there, right? So the labor fed and California labor movement has a lot of resources. And so they could fund community-based voter or voter organizing work, but that's got to fall to democratic party, progressive organizations, foundations 
to be able to fund that in a place like Texas at a scale uh, as a place like Texas, right? So I, I in my article mo- noting, right, when I first met Stacey Abrams in Georgia, I tried to help her, you know, uh, raise money and helped her raise $10,000 into her pack in 2012, which raised $54,000 that year. Last year, her organization, Fair Fight, raised $90 million. Whoa. And saved the country and saved the world (laughs) when they had the right amount of resources. And so that's what I say in our piece. I think TOPS budget is about $5 million. It should be 50, right? That that the Democrats spend over a billion dollars. Just the Democrats, progressive, super PACs. And so the numbers are there, the infrastructure and potential, but not the resources at the scale that's necessary. Let's talk a little more about leadership here uh, you highlight the importance of something you call level five leaders. We saw that Georgia's the best example. And what are level five leaders and do we have them in Texas? Yeah, so that's a that's a insight from the the author uh, Jim Collins, who wrote this uh, wrote this book, Good to Great. And he analyzed over a thousand different corporations and looked at all their data and their the analytics and the securities filings and tried to discern what was the essence of what made the great companies distinctive from just the good companies. And one of the factors, I think the first factor that he identified was he called what he calls level five leaders. And he describes it as people who are this combination of ambition and humility. And so ambition for the cause and really this, you know, incredible drive and discipline and force of will around the work and the cause but they're actually very personally humble and they don't draw you do that uh, uh, type of ambitious piece for themselves. I'm working on a, on a new book um, with the New Press. It's called How We Win the Civil War. And we're lifting up these case studies of Georgia, Arizona, some place, um, San Diego, Texas, and Virginia. And in all of those places, they have these level five leaders. And so that's what we're trying to lift that piece up is that you've got, and then for it, it's it's a little counterintuitive to people that Stacey Abrams would be such a person because she's now so famous and so well-known. But if you think about it, it's all been about the cause. People wanted her to run for everything. They do everything, run for the Senate. I mean, Chuck, you know, Chuck Schumer called me, asked me, can you get Stacey Abrams to run for the Senate? And everyone on their brother was running for a president. And so, but she was like, no, I'm, as she says, she says, I'm going to do the work and built an organization. And when I first, when she first told me about Fair Fight, I'm like, well, that sounds good, but is that the thing? Voting rights, right? But it sure turned out to be. And she built up an apparatus that was not about her. It was about doing the work. And so that's the, that's the type of person. And that's the type of leaders that all of these states actually have, like Virginia, you know, some tram, tram win with the New Virginia majority does that work, and Arizona, John Laredo. And in Texas, Michelle Tremillo and, and Brianna Brown are just got their heads down doing the work, building the organization. They're not out, you know, promoting themselves and, you know, crewing their own, you know, accolades, but they're, you know, as I would say, maniacally focused on building a voter turnout operation. So that's the type of leadership that each of these places that has had the types of transformation that we need has had. And so fortunately, Texas has it. But again, it's the resource question, right? When Stacey had $54,000, she could do, she did actually stop the state from getting, the legislature from getting a two-thirds Republican majority. When she had 90 million, she saved the whole planet. Yeah. And so that's what has to happen in a place like Texas. 
Of course, on the other side, the Republican response to voting by people of color has been vote suppression, long-term project of the Republican Party, particularly intense in Texas. They've tried to purge the voter rolls. They've forced polling places to close. They've tried to keep voter registration difficult. And most amazingly, they tried to limit voting by mail during the pandemic. So first of all, how much of the low turnout among people of color in Texas do you think is the result of Republican vote suppression and, and what can be done about it? Yeah, no, that's a, a longstanding and fundamental cornerstone um, of the conservative Confederate uh, approach, right? And going back to, really even before, but certainly going back to the post-Civil War attacks on enfranchisement and so the destruction of Reconstruction. After they got rid of Reconstruction in the in the after the Civil War, they rewrote the constitutions in the multiple Southern states to disenfranchise. And they were pretty explicit about how do we disenfranchise the black vote and make sure that it doesn't become like a place in Mississippi. The black vote was, I believe, the majority or close to the majority of all the population. So this this and then you 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 link that with the the uh, forebearers of the Proud Boys, which is this you know, really white nationalist terrorist operation. I mean, that's how the Ku Klux Klan came into being as an extra-legal terrorist organization to stop Black people from voting. So this has long roots and long history in terms of what these folks have been doing. And then I hope that even in like the history books, people will look at it and say, how, how like inhumane is it to try to force people to the polls in the middle of a pandemic? And that just even at that level, just the level of the humanity of it. So, and then everything they tried to do to get around that, right? So, okay, we'll have drop boxes or you have drive through drop boxes so that you can actually be, you know, safe and not exposed to this, uh, you know, once in a hundred year global pandemic. They're like, no, you can't do that either. And so every single possible thing they could do to suppress the vote, they did do. And I think it has a role and it has an impact in terms of not maximizing our turnout. Um, but overall, in this election, turnout was up and it did increase. And so that's what people don't fully appreciate is that it's like this, uh, the congressional view. I wrote, another, I wrote a piece for The Nation about this uh, a few months ago. In the After the congressional races, a lot of people had close races or even some of the Dems who lost were mad. And they were talking about, you know, well, you, we should be talking about defund the police and, and, and socialism. And that's why we lost. But that's not why they lost. If you look at the actual numbers and even like uh, Abigail Spamberger, I think from Virginia, one of the main people saying that she got more votes than she got in 2018. So she didn't lose any votes. What happened in this whole last election is that Trump found every single make America white again person in the entire country and brought them to the polls. And so it raised the turnout of everybody across the board. And so Democratic turnout was up in Texas, but the Republican conservative turnout was up more. And so I think that's a really important thing for us to understand. And, but there's things that we can do, right? There's a, um, one of the places I'm going to highlight in my book, another place that has this, have made this progress is in San Diego. And so Alliance San Diego, the level five leader there is woman Andrea Guerrero who's built up a you know, Latina-led civic engagement effort there, she was pointing out that San Diego's on the border of Mexico, that in Mexico, it's the law that you have to run ads on the radio publicizing the election. And so you let people know, you, you raise public awareness about it. 
So in San Diego, they hear all these ads from Mexico about upcoming elections, Hmm. but they never get any ads about elections in San Diego. (laughs) And so those are some of the structural types of things that we could do to make uh, raise awareness about election if we actually wanted people uh, to vote. And some of those types of things are, are what the, the uh, county executive in Harris County where Houston is, is done, Lena Hidalgo. She made a lot of different um, innovations like that, um, 24-hour voting to be able to make it easier to vote. And so we've shown that if you want people to vote, you can actually uh, make it easier. Um, we've seen a lot of examples of that. Steve Phillips, his article, This Is Why Texas Is the Next Georgia, is at thenation.com. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.